the five-part series where we look at the disease of addiction. This week, we hear the harrowing tales of four recovering addicts, two in residential rehab in Thailand and two in 12-step recovery here in Hong Kong. Everyone's names have been changed. First, I travel to the cabin in Chiang Mai to talk to Paddy. He's a musician about his struggles with drugs, overdoses and suicide attempts. His addiction is complicated by attention deficit hyperactive disorder and he explains how ADHD and his addiction became entwined. So, I mean, at 50, at 16, sorry, I left school, I got, uh, I got quite a good job on a golf course. So I was getting paid quite well and I started experimenting. Uh, I mean, I'd already been smoking weed, but I'd been experimenting with uppers. Um, obviously, cocaine uh, was, was the primary one. I was using a bit of, of um, ecstasy as well, but the cocaine would, level, would bring me down because everyone thinks that um, ADHD, you are operating on a faster level, but it's actually the opposite. Your, your brain is slower. So you look for, um, for the upper to, to bring your brain speed up, which, which levels you out, makes you able to concentrate, because if not, your, your body's constantly wanting to move. Um, so you want, it's like you're trying to speed yourself trying up? Trying to speed myself up so that it kind of levels me out, you can concentrate more. Um, so it's, it's a strange experience. I came, almost became hyper-focused um, when I was using upper drugs. Um, so it was a form of self-medication, which uh, I used to actually use it as a bit of an excuse. You know, it was to an extent part of my addiction but uh, there was lots of left turns when I maybe should have made right turns in my in my youth so it, that just, it just progressively got worse and worse it went from out partying to um, to just kind of sitting around on my own or if I was out partying I'd be out for maybe an hour and then I'd disappear so um, would you use party drugs as well? yeah there'd be lots of ecstasy uh, the cocaine was, was, was the main one where it did you just, get the money? well it was tough I mean I was working um, the cocaine was cheaper at the time back in the day um, and like I said at 16 I was getting paid paid quite a good wage for a 16 year old um, and I wasn't using flat out at that time um, so I was able to sustain this kind of uh, party kind of side to me my parents were, were you know I wasn't paying rent if I was meant to be paying rent I just wasn't paying it And um, did they know? they no at that time they, 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 they didn't know uh, maybe up until my mid-twenties when it really started to hit home. I mean, when I moved to Manchester to study music, uh, I started experimenting with LSD, um, and it got wildly, wildly out of control. We were experimenting different ways to take, of taking it. Um, and in the end, I ended up having a really bad... You know, I thought I was the man, I could handle it. Um, and, and I couldn't, in the end, my brain couldn't handle it anymore, and I ended up uh, having quite a bad night and, and spent six weeks in a psychiatric unit. Um, it was a really tough experience, you know, when they left the room, they'd lock the door behind them kind of stuff. That was a big crisis for you. It was a huge crisis. And, and uh, you know, at the time, I didn't see it, you know. It was just, it was just another, another thing that was happening in my addiction, and, and I didn't see the damage it was doing to my parents. I mean, the incident was, was, was pretty full on. Um, you know, no one got particularly hurt. I did hurt one of my friends, but I, I turned up at home with uh, uh, blood on me saying that I'd, I'd, I'd killed somebody, which I hadn't done. Um, it was just the effects that the drug were having on my mind and, and of course my parents had to deal with that at six o'clock in the morning um, which must have been a shocking thing for their son just kind of wandering when they're in bed you know I was living in a different city at the time so I'd driven home uh, it was just it was terrible but you weren't thinking about them I wasn't thinking about them and, and I wasn't thinking about them up until the last four months it was all it was all me everything was about me um, whether it was me in a sob story or whether it was me and how I was going to get the next drugs you know whether it was me 
what I was going to be doing. It was just all about me. I thought nothing else apart from my addiction and myself. Um, and that was so destructive. It was so destructive. I lost all communications on, a, on an intimate level, on a personal level with my sister. I still saw her, but she wasn't my sister. She was just another person. My connection with my mum and my dad was non-existent. Um, they were there. They were helping me. They were trying to save me. But my, from, from me to them... It was non-existent. I didn't have any connection with them. So your parents were sort of trying to rescue you? Oh, on a, on a huge scale. Uh, without them, I, I probably wouldn't be sat here. I wouldn't be sat anywhere. I think I'd be six feet under. I'd be dead. Um, or or best, best case scenario would be on the streets, I think. Um, they were there the whole time. And, and in my worst times, you know, at 30, I had to move back home. Um, there were multiple suicide attempts. Um, what did you do? So I had, I had obviously very dangerous relationships with girls. Um, not dangerous, just destructive. Um, and one in particular, she was a lovely girl, but we were just clashing all the time. Um, we dated for about five years. Was and she was, an addict as well? She, she had had a car crash at four uh, and was in quite a serious coma. And when she came out... Um, they had to do operate on her brain, and uh, so she used to smoke a lot of weed because it would slow her thoughts down. So I was using weed with her, uh, um, but then on the side, I mean, I was I was going full bore um, with the cocaine, especially. So you guys were kind of encouraging each other. I yeah, I would think I would say we were, but at the same time, we would be like, oh, we shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be smoking weed. It's ten o'clock, and she'd be saying, well, you're out tonight doing this, and so it was just it was carnage. And when when that ended, you know. We were very much in love, but it was just, it was, it was a destructive love. It wasn't, it wasn't real, I, didn't, I don't think. You know, I thought I was really in love with this girl. I think when I look back now, I don't know whether it was real or not. But it was in, I was in a dark place when that ended. Um, I was on my own. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I, I did something very silly. And it, if it wasn't for a few close friends, one of my dad's friends, I, I wouldn't be sat here. Did you um, overdose? I did overdose, yeah. I took a lot of um, my mum's medication. Um, various other tablets uh, and a full full bottle of vodka and, and just sat there and waited until it kicked in. Um, but it was tough, you know, ended up in the hospital and they, they looked after me for four or five days and then kicked me out the door. Uh, and within, I would say, six or seven hours, I was back round at my friend's house, my friend, my dealer's house, um, buying more drugs. And it was, that was the same with the psych unit, six weeks in there, and I kept, that's when I got diagnosed with ADHD, came out the other side and it was... 20-minute walk to my friend's house, dealer's house, sorry, and, um, yeah, I picked up straight away. And so getting to rehab, you know, this went on for many years. I had to move back with my parents who were trying everything, everything in their power um, to help me, to save me. And I was just, just non-compliant. So... Did it, you, would you be in denial, would you say, that I, of your problem? I, I think there's obviously some denial. There has to be um, when I look at it. But I was very aware... Of, of what I was doing to myself. And I think I, I, I would have been at the time if I had overdosed on cocaine, which I did a few times, but if I hadn't have woken up the next morning, it, my mindset was it wouldn't have bothered me. Probably better for me. Probably better for my family. And that's, that's a dark place to be. It was, it was really tough. All my music just was non-existent. My love for anything was just, was just not there. Um, so would you say you had any purpose left in your life? I, zero, I would say. My purpose was to get in that car and go and pick up more drugs every day. That was my purpose in life, was to get high. And if, and if, I, if I couldn't, um, the day was... It was impossible. Right, it was unmanageable. So how did you get from there to rehab? So from there to rehab, I mean, I really, really was in a bad state. I weighed 46 kg, um, which I think is 
just over just over seven stones. So my body was shutting down. The doctors were going, Manny, what are you doing? My parents were looking at me with their head on their hands. And I just woke up one word and I hadn't got to sleep. I came downstairs one morning in the state and just said to my mum and my dad, you've got to get me. You've got to get me out of here. Um, if you don't, I will die. Um, and they, we, we did a bit of research together. I wasn't really in a fit state. Um, and they found this place. They, they, they organised it. They're paying for it. And they got me out here. That was Paddy. Next, I spoke to Ratchner, who explains how emotional pain and family problems underpinned her addictive behaviours, which finally led her to treatment. From a very young age, I had this sense of feeling um, kind of empty and isolated, and I was always sure it was something to do with um, mental health issues, and I used to... I had been on medication for that for about... 10 years now and it was just my parents kept trying to fix the issue and I tried to fix the issue I tried to was diagnosed with many different things bipolar OCD anxiety depression everything in the book and I just wasn't getting much out of that you know like trying to be cured all the time with a medical fix it wasn't really giving me anything it just made me feel like wow even this doesn't do it for me you know um so as the years went on I just kind of um ran to other things, you know, romantic relationships, food, um, some substance abuse, but I really didn't hit a low with that. It was kind of more, I didn't have access to that as much where I was living, and, but I did explore it in other areas, and I realized I would have these breakdowns all the time, just get into fights, ruin relationships, disappoint my family countless times. So about a year ago, or yeah, like six months ago, I, I basically had a meltdown, got into a physical fight with a family member, and then realized that, like, that night I was in shambles. I felt suicidal. I felt horrible again. And Did you actually try to end no, your life? No, but I've, I've had a lot of, like, self-harm with cutting and things like that, and I've never really tried to end my life, but I've put out like a note and prepared the whole idea and then kind of taken gone back on it and then felt more shame because I couldn't follow through but then realizing I don't know what death gives me you know like there's no guarantees on that side so I was willing to keep going with life and so at that point I was pretty much destroyed and I was like I have to come back from this didn't know if it was like addiction or trauma whatever but I had to tackle it so, but, I so how did you how did you get from that unhappy state of affairs into treatment well I had been considering it for a few months because I was okay and then I was like you know I just feel the sense of loneliness and sadness and it's not going away no meds are doing it for me no therapy counseling nothing you know so I was like okay we're gonna do this we started exploring the cabin because it was closer to where I was living um, and then we just kept putting it off you know and then this meltdown happened we booked a flight like a week later and so what has treatment done for you I think treatment has given me a lot of perspective and like self-awareness more than anything. I'm now really aware of the fact that I'm responsible for my feelings. You know, no one else can make me feel a certain way. No, nothing external makes me feel anything. Like it's it's all my internal process and the and the things I've been I've been blaming people my whole life and been taking it out and not being responsible for any of it or accountable. And I'm not saying I'm the most like high achieving accountable person now but I but I do like I'm fully aware that no one makes me mad it's me reacting you know and and then what what I choose to do with that like the tools that they've given me CBT things like that and that's um, cognitive behavioral therapy yes yes and um, that's been like 
it's just been eye-opening. More than anything, I've gained self-awareness and responsibility through the process. So how has this, would you say, affected your relationship with your family and your parents? Because addiction tends to be a, a kind of a family thing, doesn't yeah. it? Um, specifically with my mom, I think it's very hard for her to see me growing on my own. Like, they, they constantly remind me they're funding this, and they're, and they're without them I couldn't be doing any of this, and I understand that, but, but a lot of it is like, a process of letting go for them and for me but I'm pretty much detached now I still have to get back in contact and really like my mom's coming today and I'm gonna see her and but but she's having a hard time accepting the fact that I don't need her as much mm. there's a lot of like being codependent and and expecting me to cling on what does on. what does that mean codependent would you say uh, for me that means like really for me, it's toxic, you know? It's, it's kind of like a relationship where you are in this fight, like a dance almost. Like, like you need the other person to feel this way and you need to react this way. And I don't know how to explain it, but it's like every other teenage relationship now, you know? Like, and especially in addiction, you kind of, you bounce off of each other in the most negative way. Like, if one person is doing the other thing, oh, you made me feel that way and you need to stay with me and, and then there's abuse and neglect and that's how I'd explain it really, you know? Um, it's just, you're too dependent on each other. There's so no living without the other. How have you, uh, how do you think you'll resolve that? Because you can't stay in treatment forever. Yeah. Well, I think I wrote a letter to my parents and it was very long, three pages, and, and, I, and just describing that... I, like, I think there's more to it. Like, they definitely need to go to some family counseling, too, because I can't do all the work now, and, I, and I've done a lot of damage in my family, but I feel like I'm taking all the responsibility for it and no one else's for their stuff. Because as a child, I was completely neglected, thrown into different countries, just complete, like, nothing, you know? I didn't have connection, and now they want all this connection from me, and I don't think I can give that unless there's both work, work on both sides. So I think family counseling together might help, some therapy on their own, I'm planning to live here a little longer. Maybe that distance can help. I've always been away from them, so it's not... I don't know if distance is what I need. Maybe emotional like connection, too, you know? So recovery isn't a, a quick fix, is it? It, no. it seems to take time. Yeah, recovery's for life. Um, I would say it's not... It's one day at a time, and, and my most... What I want to feel is like I want to be present and I want to accept the day as it comes, you know, because I'm going to have these ups and downs. They never go away. There's no quick fix. And every day, like, if I look at it as I'll never use or drink again, it's really hard. But if I look at it as today I won't do that and tomorrow I won't do it, like, as the day goes on, I feel comforted. I feel like one day that's added to my clean time is more, it's like, it's working through it, you know, and, and I just, I like the whole saying like it doesn't happen overnight addiction didn't have happen overnight and neither does recovery and i think it's for life that was rachner taking recovery day by day back in hong kong i caught up with jenny a recovering alcoholic with 15 years of sobriety and asked her when she first realized that she had a problem i think part of my problem was is i actually didn't realize that i actually had a problem um, I, I would say I was in denial for many years that I actually, uh, my drinking had got out of control. Um, How much were you drinking, would you say? I, I, it's hard to say, but effectively I was drinking to blackout, which meant I had absolutely no memory 
of uh, what was happening once uh, once I'd started drinking. And now, would you now? Blackout is one of those phrases, isn't it? Do, by blackout, do you mean you were walking around not aware of what was going on, or were you actually on the floor unconscious? Well, I think this is the problem with a blackout. You don't know. So there are still now, 15 years on, great like gaps of my memory where I have no idea what happened to me at certain moments of time in my past. So complete lack of memory. Absolutely no idea. For me, it was that, that waking up in the morning with that fear of not knowing what had happened the night before. Because when there's absolutely no memory, you know, you're very vulnerable and you have got no idea what happened to you or you know if any of the the incidences that happened so um that i would say was what brought me into recovery was the shame of not knowing what was happening and what woke you up to to break through that denial would you say i suddenly realized that it was midweek and it was about one o'clock in the morning and I was in the bar and I suddenly it occurred to me that most normal people are not in the bar at one in the morning they're actually at home in bed because they're going to be getting up the next morning to go to work for their for their jobs and I suddenly realized that what I was doing was not a normal way of behaving Yes. So, was there a crisis event that you'd say happened? I think it was more that dawning awakening. It was that one particular instance when I suddenly saw what I looked like. It was like I I sort of suddenly realised how I must appear to other people. Right, because alcoholism alcoholism is the disease that tells you you don't have it, isn't it? Very much so. Very much so. Yeah, that was... When I look back then on my, my history of drinking, I, I mean, I started when I was 13 years old, and for, I would say from that moment I was drinking to blackout. And all through my, my history of, you know, university, every student drinks, then I was uh, travelling, well, every traveller drinks... Uh, then I had a, a bad work situation. I was drinking for that. Those were always my excuses. Uh, there was never, you know, whereas I actually didn't realise that drink was actually the problem. Right. So you were, would you say you were drinking to change your feelings? Very much so, yes. Yes, I wanted to have a switch-off point. I wanted to um, be able to uh, deal with the anxiety that I felt inside and um, deal with the, the fears that I had. Okay, so how did you get into recovery and, and what happened next? I, I actually, through a, it was actually a depression self-help group that was going in Hong Kong at the time, uh, a year prior to coming into recovery, uh, I met uh, somebody on there who was uh, in AA. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, that's right. And uh, she gave me some information about it because I'd mentioned uh, drinking and uh, well it took me another year it planted a seed and so then a year later when I had this moment and I realised that my drinking wasn't normal uh, that's when I went into recovery and I went to my first AA meeting Recovering alcoholic Jenny Jack's multiple drug addictions started as a young teenager at boarding school in England Um, There's a lot of drinking involved, there's a lot of pot smoking, there's a lot of uh, ecstasy, things like that, and uh, just to fit in with the crowd. 
And so, I mean, I felt that I always, I think I always felt like um, uh, apart, you know, apart from. So, uh, and whenever I had a drink, whenever I took a drug, I just felt, all of a sudden, I just felt as though I fit in. So it point. gave you a sense of belonging. Just it gave me a sense of belonging, it gave me a sense of uh, connecting with people. So whenever I travel, I used to travel a lot, and so whenever I would travel, I would relocate to a new, uh, a new country, um, I would feel very lonely for a long time, and then all of a sudden, uh, I would find some drinking buddies or some party buddies, and then I suddenly feel <laughs> very included immediately. Uh, and uh, it was always like a bit of a crutch for me at okay. the beginning. So how did it progress? I think for me that um, as, you know, I used it as a crutch, and the more I used it, uh, the more it became a solution to my, to my troubles. So what were you using? So initially, I mean, it was, you know, it was uh, you know, uh, a lot of alcohol, uh, but then um, in order to be able to stay um, awake longer, drink longer, I would start using cocaine. Um, and um, after a while, I mean, it went from you know once a week, you know, Friday night um, with my friends, uh, to uh, you know Friday and Saturday, and then we would add in uh, Wednesday into the mix. And then after a while, it just became, it just started progressing further. And so Thursday got jumped, in, you know, put in Tuesday, Sunday night watching football, <laughs> Monday just for a laugh, you know. And then after a while, it just became. Just every, almost every night, there was always an excuse um, to, you know, to to you know, to pick up and use and drink. Um, at the same time, also the people I was surrounding myself with uh, were kind of people who um, were drinking a lot, were out and entertaining a lot, and so it just became what became abnormal became normal. I think one of the things that was very alarming was um, how I was able to um, to uh, accept unacceptable behavior by the end of it. Um, so insanity had kind of taken over? Essentially, yes. I mean, I'd lost my moral compass. Um, so that every, all the things that you know, my parents had ri- has raised me, all the, all the standards that they set for me, all the, all the manners and everything that they set for me, um, had basically went out the window. I think part of it was because as I was getting more, you know, I was using more drugs, um, getting more messed up, um, you know, I was behaving worse. In order to feel better about myself, or at least um, be able to live with myself, I would um, lower my, you know, my moral standards so that um, I wasn't breaking them all the time. So a major departure from your real values. Completely, completely. Um, I think, I mean, I, you know, a lot of us we pride ourselves on being you know, good human beings, um, being loyal human beings, um, and uh, and things like that, and and that all went out the window. Okay, so how did you descend into heavier and heavier drugs? Tell us about that progression. Um, I think for me is that if I, looking back on it, um, and one of the things we do in recovery is kind of look back on our past um, and map out what we've gone through in our lives. And I think there's a number of major life events. Um, I think um, that I would blame, <laughs> uh, that I would blame and uh, justify uh, using. Uh, I mean, I had a. Um, I, I had a separation from my first marriage um, at the end of uh, at the end of last decade. Was that um, caused by your using? Um, at the time, no. But looking back on it, yes. Right. <laughs> um, and I think that and uh, that took a lot of acceptance to be able to accept the fact that it was me that really was the cause of a lot of that uh, the dissolution of that marriage. Um, but I wouldn't have admitted it at the time. Um, just like I wouldn't have admitted that I was a drug addict at the time. Um, I think that. Um, 
and also uh, the loss of my business around the same time. Um, Connected? And, uh, not yes and no. I mean, financial crisis was a big factor with that as well. Um, I was quite functional at that time, and the way that I would run my business uh, with clients and stuff was heavily you know, built around. I mean, I would justify everything as... I'm doing business. I'm entertaining cast clients, things like that. So loads of excuses. Exactly. I mean, it was, and I mean, most clients, if you, you know, if we were to be honest, leave at around eleven o'clock at night. <laughs> I wouldn't get home till two, three, four in the morning. Then, when I separated from my ex-wife, um, I wasn't working for a little while. I was basically, you know, this kind of newly single man. I was like, right, I'm just going to let loose. And at that point, I had no boundaries. Um, right. Descended further into uh, daily using. Um, of, of what? Cocaine initially. Um, and then um, cocaine got quite expensive because I wasn't working. Um, and then uh, and then I uh, started dabbling in crystal meth, uh, which was cheaper, easy to use, and you know, lasted longer. But the problem with crystal meth is that, uh, is, uh, that I started... The, the come downs were a lot heavier, a lot harder. And so I didn't want to, um, and I didn't want to come down, so I would basically not sleep. <laughs> um, so the solution, I mean, and that's the insanity of it, right? The solution mm. of not feeling um, uh, like hell the next day was to let's not feel like hell the next day, let's not have the next day. Let's, let's just postpone keep it. Let's put, yeah, exactly, let's postpone it, let's keep it running. And I would go days, you know, weeks, um, you, know, you know, seven, eight days on the trot without sleeping. That was Jack, whose situation is extreme. Finally, a word from counsellor Dr Seamus McCauley. After hearing these heartbreaking stories of shame and pain, what's the tipping point that finally prompts addicts to get help? Well, at its simplest, it's pain. It's um, when the pain of doing what they're doing or the pain of using is worse than the pain of quitting. You usually find that um, people are... um, in a space where they want to change that situation. That pain may be physical, it may be emotional, it may be um, the pain of living with the shame of themselves, um, and it may be the pain caused by causing other people pain. Um, But ultimately that's the big driver. It's a very, very powerful driver. So, as a consequence of their using, they're in such pain that they actually them, would themselves seek help, or would it need to, for them to get a push from somebody else, yeah. like family member? Not always. Um, are they going to seek that, or uh, will they be motivated to to seek that change themselves? They may be incapable of doing that, and in that situation, they have to be gathered up, if you like, and um, pretty much forced. Um, and we do see people in treatment who. Um, are there because families have um, laid down the law and decided that action needs to be taken or they may be court mandated Um, it doesn't really matter what's important is that they find themselves in a place of safety where um, the process of change can start they may well have been contemplating it for years but um, until such times as they get to that kind of tipping point as you describe Nothing much is going to happen. Once again, Dr. Seamus McCauley. Thank you to this week's guests for courageously sharing their stories. Next week, addiction is a family disease. Until then. (laughs) 